When I was in college, I lived in my great aunt and uncle's basement, and I kind of lived an old person's existence. No offense if this is your existence. Uh, including reading the newspaper every morning. That was just kind of my ritual, as I'd sit and have coffee and read the newspaper, because they still published newspapers back then. And one day I looked and I saw that a famous, kind of a, what some people consider one of the best living writers, was coming to speak in the town. His name's Frederick Buechner, and he is a former pastor, had turned writer, and my English professors all loved this author, and I went, okay, let me go. I'll just drop everything tonight and go to this lecture. And I was one of the youngest people here at this lecture, sitting on the back row, and I remember like something that he said has stuck with me ever since. The, the interviewer was talking about his writing. He was also talking about the fact that he's a, an ordained minister and how those things work. And one of the things he asked him is, what do you think the biggest issue for Christianity is? And he just immediately said, is it true? And at the time, I was like, man, my mind's blown. This is like this old, wise, major literary figure. And he's like, the, the issue is, is it true? And at the time, I thought that that was limited to, does God exist? Did God create the world? Did Jesus really die and rise again? Was kind of what he meant. So I kind of carried that with me, thinking about, is it true is really the, what, the big issue of Christianity. And then I read some of his other writings recently. And I discovered that he, he means that, but he also means, is it true where we're sitting on Sunday morning? Like, sure, we can, we, it could be the lobby, it could be our seat, but we come on Sunday morning with anxieties and cares and concerns. We have things that have happened, hopes that have been dashed. We have things, that, good things that have been, happened. And sometimes we can just like, Frederick Buechner would say that one of the issues of Christianity is we can slide in and say these things, but is it true? Does it actually connect with the depression that I live with every day? Does it connect with the hurting neighbors? Does it connect here at Christmas with the lonely Christmas I'm looking forward to? Does that connect with where we actually are at? And so I think a, a starting place for us here in the Christmas season is, where actually are we? Like, What's actually true where we're sitting? Because Christmas is about hope and peace and joy and red and green things and all of this great stuff. But like Rachel said, sometimes some of us get to the Christmas season kind of weary. There's this, this half of us that says, okay, I'm going to do all this stuff to have the best Christmas possible. But the other half of me is really li- missing somebody, missing something. I'm supposed to be working so hard on my kids' Christmas stuff, but honestly, I'm not sure I can afford any of it. Like some of us are in that place today. We come to Christmas with all these hopes and dreams, but if we're, if we're saying, is it true, where are we actually at? What I love about the Christmas story is it actually meets us in that place, not expecting us to go to the jolly, happy place that we're expected to go in the malls and in the stores and in the restaurants. It's not the Christmas cards. Those aren't the place that Jesus meets us. It's in those Christmas card pictures where everybody's out of focus and the kids are off center and nobody's clothes match. Christmas actually comes there first, not to the place that the stores want us to go to. So what I want to show you today, we're going into the Christmas season and I want to, we're, I want to show you how God starts with us where we are actually at here at Christmas. So what I want you to do as I want you to turn to the end of the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Malachi chapter 4. Guys running slides, don't worry, I didn't have that included. 
Malachi chapter 4. It's okay if you have to use your table of contents to find it. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. 5 and 6. The last words of the Old Testament say, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Maybe you go, Joe, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? These are the last words that God speaks to Israel, and then he goes silent for 400 years. The very last words that he speaks are these words of, I will turn the hearts, I will send someone, I will send Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And then it goes silent for 400 years. That's longer than America the United States of America has existed. That would be like saying 400 years of silence from God going back to 1618. Can you imagine? It's not just my life has felt like it's been in the wilderness, but my dad's life and my grandpa's life and my great-grandpa's life. And going back generation after generation, they've lived in the silence of God with this promise that God's going to send Elijah, but we don't see him now, and we haven't heard from him in hundreds of years. So these are the last words of the Old Testament. And the way we read the Bible, we would look, flip over the next page and see Matthew. But to the, to the original readers, they had scrolls, and so they would actually memorize them. And so the last words of the Old Testament were these words in Malachi, and then the Gospel writers write their accounts. And when somebody would read those things, it would be like Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I will send Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And then the next, the very next words of God come in the book of Luke. They come in the book of Matthew. They come in the book of Mark. But here we're going to be looking this Christmas season in the book of Luke. And so at this moment of total silence, where God hasn't said anything in hundreds of years, we get the book of Luke. Luke is a doctor and he researches an account and says, I want to give you a historical account. I want to get all the, the facts right. He tells a little bit about himself, and then Luke chapter 1, verse 5, is where the story begins. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. They were both very old. So the Christmas story starts in the silence of God with the hopes of the people being dashed year after year. And then it comes to an old man and his old wife and they have no kids. Luke could have started the story anywhere. He could have started anywhere, but instead he starts. God starts the story in the silence of God with this couple with a great longing for a child. You see, at the time, having no children was a sign that God was punishing you. It was a sign, uh, children were a sign of God's blessing. And so, even though they were righteous people observing the Lord's commands 
Zechariah and Elizabeth would have had shame and disgrace on them and their family because they couldn't have kids. The Lord hadn't given them kids, and so there was disgrace that they walked in. They're old, very old, like Abraham and Sarah were. But then verse 8 picks up and says, Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. This may have been Zechariah's one chance to to do this job in the temple. You see, they did it by casting lots, and it's kind of like rolling dice. And so it was a this was this may have been his one chance. At most, he may have gotten a handful of chances to do this. But he's very old. This is his chance to go in and offer incense before the Lord. All of the worshipers were praying outside, and then verse 11 says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So here in the silence of God, nobody's heard from God for 400 years. It's been generation after generation. And we have Zechariah, whose hopes of a child have been dashed. With each passing year, he knows it could never happen. God comes and meets him, sends the angel of the Lord to him, and he says, your prayer has been heard. It doesn't tell us exactly what his prayer had been. It was common for Jews to pray for the Messiah to come. This, and so we could take this as the Lord was answering his prayer that the Messiah is going to come. But it sure seems to me that he's saying, you've been praying for a son. And here he is. Your prayer has been heard, Zechariah. You are to call him John. Verse 14 says, he will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so here it is. The story starts in the silence of God and with the hopes of this man The last thing they've heard from him is, I'm going to send Elijah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Then the angel of the Lord comes and says, the Lord has heard your prayer. And this baby is going to be Elijah who is going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to be the one to turn the hearts of the fathers or the hearts of the parents to their children. And so when we come here on Sunday, this first Sunday of the Christmas season, Thanksgiving is now behind us. And we can now openly sing Christmas carols and play our CDs and decorate our trees and open the shutters so people can know that we've been doing this. On this day, when we come in saying, God, here's the anxieties, here's the financial pressure, here's the the relationships that I miss. God, here's the mess that I'm carrying this Christmas. Here we find, here we find God saying, prepare the way of the Lord here at Christmas. Not, hey, get everything fixed so that the Lord can come. He says, prepare the way of the Lord right there in the middle of all of that. And so what I want to show you, starting right here, is three ways to prepare for Christmas. Verse 17 tells us, prepare the way of the Lord. Be prepared for the Lord. You see, this is the, this is the whole point that, that 
Zechariah and Elizabeth would have this baby John is because he says he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so Christmas is not about just about peace and glory to God in the highest. It's not just about hope and it's not about warm feelings. It's actually about being prepared for God. Christmas is, though all of those other things are things that are supposed to help us be prepared for the Lord. Because each of these is saying that he's turning the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord. He's piling up this idea that Christmas is about the presence of God come to us. And so when, we're, when we in this Christmas season are getting ready for Christmas, we're not just getting ready for presents, and we're not just getting ready for warm feelings, we're actually getting ready to see the Lord. What does that look like? This passage unfolds what that looks like. It says he's turning the hearts of the people back to God. We would expect he would turn the feet of the people back to God. He would get the people to obey better. Can't you just behave? Can't you just do the things that you're supposed to do? And he said, he says, no, John is going to turn their hearts back to the Lord. He describes it as the hearts of the the parents to the children, or your translation may say, the fathers to their children. What I find so interesting about that is we would expect that being a mother or a father would be the most natural thing in the world. But here he's saying, no, to be prepared for the Lord, our natural inclination as parents is actually away from our children. And one of the things that the Lord is doing is he's actually going to be turning our hearts back towards them, so that for them. He also describes it as turning the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. But notice he, that when John has his ministry later on, John the Baptist, when he has his ministry in the wilderness, the religious leaders go out and scoff and judge him and look at him, but it's prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners that are the ones that are fulfilled here. It's not like, hey, if you can follow all the rules, because the Pharisees had that under control. But God is the one, he's like, be prepared for the way of the Lord by turning your hearts towards him. And so in that respect, prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors are the ones with the advantage because they're the ones who have no excuse. They know that their feet have gone astray. They know they've done the, the wrong things. And so here he says, he's turning their hearts back to the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verse 13, talks about rending your heart and not your garments. You see, we so easily want, God, if I can just look good on the outside, if I can just follow enough rules and not do the things I feel worst about, then maybe you'll be happy with me today. But no, God says, actually, I want your heart. I don't want the outside. I want your heart. And so this Christmas, being prepared for the way of the Lord means actually turning our hearts towards Him. It doesn't mean we just scrap everything else. It doesn't mean that we say, no, Santa Claus songs, no, none of this, no, none of that. No, instead, it's God, may this Christmas, may my heart be prepared for you. May I come out with the sinners who have no excuse and say, God, I want to see you this Christmas. I want my heart to be sent on you. I don't care what gifts that I get. I don't care what gifts that I give. I actually want to be prepared for the Lord. But then we see that Zechariah responds and asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. This is 
in some sense, this is a totally reasonable uh, I'm sorry, uh, expectation. How can I know this is going to happen? We, but this is the same thing that Abraham did. Abraham asked the same thing. How can I be sure that I'm going to have a son? But Zechariah is looking at an angel in the temple and says this, and the angel's response is, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. The word being used to tell you this good news is the same word we sometimes would translate as preach the good news, preach the gospel. I have been sent to speak to you and preach the gospel to you, Zechariah. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah's request is reasonable. But we find in Gabriel's response, this call, here's the second way we prepare for Christmas, is to turn our ears towards this good news. It's reasonable for Zechariah to say, how is this going to happen? But Gabriel's words point us not to, hey, how dare you question me? It's that he's saying, Zechariah, I'm telling you what God has said. And what God says, God does. Don't question what I'm telling you, not because of me, but because these are God's words. Turn your ears to His words, Zechariah. And so the reminder for us this Christmas season is that what God says, God does. Gabriel's not pointing to himself, he's pointing to God. And so Christmas is a season that says, will we be prepared for Christmas by turning our ears towards His good news? Will we turn our ears towards His good news? This last weekend, I or this last week, we were in Kentucky with my family and the conversation turned towards hearing loss and how the kids end up hearing different things than the adults. And it turns out it's not a nefarious thing that like uh, the, t- the advertisers, are, um, advertisers are sneaking things into kids' shows that the adults can't hear. It's just the reality is as we get older, there are frequencies we can't hear anymore. And so as adults, we start to think, oh, my hearing's fine because I hear most frequencies, but... Actually, as an adult, it begins to be harder and harder to hear the things that our kids hear. We don't call it hearing loss, but ultimately, some people hear things that the rest of us don't. And in this passage, one of the points of this is turn your ears. Don't just pretend you've heard the Christmas message because you know the gospel. Just because you attend church, just because you know these things. No, he's saying, no, pay close attention. Because, Zechariah, you're being deaf to the words of God that I speak to you. So the second way that we prepare for Christmas is don't be deaf this Christmas to the good news of the gospel. Don't just act like, oh, I've got that. And be desensitized to it. Because remember, what God says, God does. And that's so important at Christmas to go, what promises of God has He given me? And Christmas is a reminder that He keeps those promises. This, This promise in this story was that Elijah would come And God kept that promise. But He's also promised to be with us. He's also promised to be in us. He's also promised to come back and get us. And so the Christmas, we're called to actually have ears to hear that promise again. Turning our ears towards this good news. So to this point, Zechariah is now mute. It says, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. 
When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Right here in Elizabeth's words, we find the third way that we prepare for Christmas. We prepare for Christmas when we trade our disgrace for the light. We trade our disgrace for delight because that's what God specializes in at Christmas. He could have come to any couple at any time. There were lots of other couples who loved the Lord and they were younger and they had much fruitful ministry out ahead of them. There were richer couples. There were lots of places that Elijah, the one like Elijah, could be born. But God chose this specific couple because He wanted to teach us about Himself Elizabeth says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Over in verse 14 is where he says, he will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. In Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, there is this trade of their disgrace for delight. And God specializes in that at Christmas. John could have been born to anybody. It doesn't matter who it is, but God delights, and we see this throughout the Bible, God delights in taking shame-filled, disgraceful people and filling them with His delight. He doesn't. His specialty is not taking people. This is what Jesus says. Not, it's not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick. I didn't come for the righteous, but the unrighteous. God's, the Christmas shows us that God's specialty is taking our disgrace and replacing it with His delight. But what I want you to notice is that this isn't for everybody. In verse 14, he says, many will rejoice because of his birth. Not all. Verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 16, he says, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Not all. You see, John's ministry doesn't mean that everybody is going to turn their hearts towards the Lord. There are crowds and crowds of people. There are many, many Pharisees that just stand and shake their head and cross their arms and say, this is not for me. I do not need you and I do not need this. That some will not not see their own disgrace and trade that for delight. Some of them say, hey, I have nothing I need to repent of. I've been righteous my whole life. There's nothing I need to repent of. And so the invitation is, is to trade our disgrace for His delight, but it's not a guarantee that everybody's going to do that. So the invitation is, what are we going to do with this? But honestly, I look at this passage and I go, here at Christmas, I'm supposed to be prepared for the Lord. Here at Christmas, I'm supposed to turn my ear to His good news. Here at Christmas, I'm supposed to trade disgrace for delight, but on my own, I so often do not do any of this. So often, I'm not prepared for the way of the Lord. I'm actually just preparing my own way to do my own things. So often, I'm not turning my ear to hear His good news. I'm actually trying to make my own good news and declare it to the world. Look, I'm okay. Look, everything's okay. Look at me. So often, I can't bear to see my disgrace before God, trusting that He will actually turn that into delight. And maybe you're the same way today. Maybe this Christmas you hear, oh, I'm supposed to be prepared, but on my own, I can't do any of this. 
Where is the good news for people like me who aren't prepared for the Lord, who are deaf to the good news of God, and who often hold on to our own disgrace when God offers us delight? The good news in this passage is that John isn't actually the Messiah. He's just declaring the one who would be. And the true Messiah would come and live the life we should have lived. He's the one who died the death we should have died. He's the one who traded His delight for our disgrace so that we could have His delight. He's the one who has traded these things in our place. And so the invitation here, we started out, some of us start out at Christmas in the silence of God. Some of us start out at Christmas lonely, afraid, with anxiety, with pressures. This passage, this story tells us that God meets us there and says, get ready, I'm coming. This story is the beginning of the great rescue. As God says, prepare the way of the Lord. Now some of you, maybe you're a guest, maybe you've been here for a while, are like, Joe, how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure I'm ready for Christmas? How can I know I'm ready for the way for the Lord to come? Not just on Christmas morning as a little baby, but someday coming back as a king on a horse with a sword. How can I know for sure I will escape His punishment? How can I know I can be His friend and a family member and not an enemy? The story of the Bible is the story that God made the world that makes Him king and He sets the rules. He placed humans as His crowning achievement and said, it is very good. Now you will live as little kings under me. The story of the Bible is that all of us, Adam, starting with Adam and Eve, continuing down to me and my kids and you and your kids, that we all say, no, God, we will not live your way. We will not do your thing. We're going to do our own thing and set up our own kingdom. We're like the Pharisees in the story who don't need anybody to rescue them because they don't think they've ever done anything wrong. The story of the Bible is that God will punish His enemies. The Bible describes it as hell and says it is the worst thing ever and it is eternal and forever. But Christmas is the story of the great rescue beginning. Christmas is the story that instead of leaving us as His enemies, God comes to be with us, trading His delight for our disgrace so that we can enter into His delight. The story of Christmas is that all who repent of sin and trust in Christ, all who turn away from sin and trust in Christ, are now welcomed into the family. And so then when the way of the Lord comes, there is mercy and there is grace. And it is the welcome, it is the celebration that we want at Christmas. So my invitation to you is if you have questions about that, if you've heard that story and you say, I want to know for sure, or I want to tell somebody for sure that I have prayed and repented of sin, turning away from it and taking Jesus, you come grab me, grab somebody that brought you, grab somebody that you're with. Now we're going to move into a time of the Lord's Supper, which is a time I think is appropriate here at this time of year, too, where we celebrate the coming of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of Him coming back. I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, or 26. Hold on, we'll just a minute with music. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's very appropriate at the beginning of the Christmas season for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Christmas celebrates God coming as a baby and the Lord's Supper celebrates the fact that he is coming again as our king to be with us. This, these verses point us to the fact that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance that we do. Here at our church, we do it once a month on the last Sunday of the month as a remembrance of his life in our place, his death in our place, and his resurrection as a promise of what is to come for us. This passage describes it as a new covenant. And so the Lord's Supper is actually a declaration uh, that I have a new heart in me because I have trusted in Christ and turned away from sin. So the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, if this is your first time or you haven't been here when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, or if you're new, the way we celebrate it here is we play some music, we have a cup, and we have the bread here. You can come and take that. You can, with my kids, we celebrate it off to the side. You can go back to your seat and celebrate it on your own. But I just ask that you pray before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, I love you and I thank you. I have repented of sin and trusted in Christ. And I am now celebrating this new covenant that you have put in place for me. So you can come as you're ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you that you call us to be prepared, not for nice things. You call us to be prepared for you. I pray that the Lord's Supper would be a part of that preparation as we take hold of what you've done for us and remember that you are coming back for us. In Jesus' name, amen.